Hello, hello, hello. I am back and you are listening to Cup of the Boo. This is part two of Earl Leonard Nelson, otherwise known as the Dark Strangler. Ooh. So it's like been a week, by the way. I'm I'm sorry. I went for my second jab on Monday afternoon and I was like man down for two days. You can like I'm still feeling like a little bit gross. So on top of that, it's hay fever season and I think I may be allergic to the cats that I'm looking after, which sucks because like I mean I'm not I'm I'm always gonna love them. Obviously, I'm just going to have to live on antihistamines now. But anyway, besides the point, um, yeah, so there's that. And then as I came in to record earlier, this freaking bug demon from hell ran across the floor of my room. And I was like, what the hell are you? So (laughs) mild panic stations, I caught it and uh, I took it outside. Totally freaked me out. Super grossed out. I think it's a mole cricket. Looks like an earwig or a mole cricket. I don't know. Both are gross. I don't want that thing crawling into my brain at night. Strongly against that. Strongly against things inside my brain. Thank you. Thank you very much. Also, I found out the difference between a cellar and a basement. For anyone that's interested, a cellar is often smaller than a basement and, you know, mostly used to store wine or coal. Uh, It is also underground, as is a basement, which, you know, is there under your house. But basements are generally larger and don't have the specific storage purpose. So, hashtag the more you know. It is a pleasure. I hope that you're ready for your weekly dose of dark, sick and twisted, served in your cup of taboo. Warning. The following episode contains graphic descriptions of violence, rape and murder. Listener discretion is advised. a quick recap. Earl was born in San Francisco in 1897. He suffered a traumatic brain injury or two, you know. (laughs) He was just downright weird. He started murdering and raping landladies in 1926. Between February and December of 1926, he murdered 15 people, one being an eight-month-old baby. He would travel from one state to another and managed to avoid getting caught. He also had cooling off periods between some of his kills. Also, he was married to an old lady who was old enough to be his grandmother. And, uh, yeah, just really weird, super obsessed with the religion and really good at escaping things. So, yeah, I think that's everything summarized. Now, let me continue with this monster, the Dark Strangler. The year is now 1927. There's still flappers flapping about, no cell phones, a serial killer on the loose, and the term serial killer had not even been coined yet. Side note, the term serial killer is believed to have been coined by FBI agent Ressler in 1974 only, but it only really caught on in the media in the early 80s though. But like, now it's literally used in my everyday language. Hectic, right? That was, that was a fun fact. But another fun fact, which, you know, I'm just sprinkling these in like it's going out of business. A lot of people actually blame the advent of the motorized car with the rise of serial killers. 
Right? Think about it. Before there were cars, like, people couldn't really travel as easily or as quickly. So they would just kill in the same spot and get caught. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, think about H.H. H. Holmes. He, he literally built himself a murder house. Or murder castle, whatever it was. Like, because he, 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 I suppose he was pretty, pretty smart for doing that. But that's besides the point. Anyway, sidetracked. Back to the story. Back to our reg regularly scheduled reading. <laughs> My bad. I will continue to read. The Dark Strangler's 16th victim was a lady named Mary McConnell. She was a 53-year-old widow who lived in Philadelphia, Philadelphia on South 16th Street. <gasps> 16th victim, South 16th Street. Again. I'm going to be doing the distances for those who are interested in them. Philadelphia is around 1,200 miles or 1,931 kilometers from Kansas City. So this would take around 17 hours to drive. So now we're now on the east coast on, of the US of A. So in this case, a neighbor of Mary's saw a strange man approach the house at around 2.45 p.m. on the 27th of April. The house was up for sale and had been on the market for nearly a year. About half an hour after the neighbor saw the man, they saw him leave again. Like, didn't take much note, it was just like, ah, oh, okay, weird. Anyway, her body was found only a few moments later by her son-in-law, who was there to help her repaper an upstairs bedroom. He arrived at the house at around half past 3pm and when he got inside he saw that the place was a mess. It seemed like there had been some kind of struggle, and he found her body stuffed under the bed. She had been strangled with a dust rag that had been knotted so tightly that he couldn't undo it with his fingers. He had to actually cut it off. I mean, that's that's pretty tight. And an old cotton sock had been stuffed deep into her mouth. After examining the scene, the, de the detectives concluded that this was the work of the strangler, whose description by that point was well known by every state. One month and three days later, he struck again. This time, he was in Buffalo. Buffalo Soldier. Okay, not that Buffalo. Buffalo, New York. It's about 400 miles or 643 kilometers from Philadelphia, and it would take around six hours to drive. Mrs. Jenny Randolph was a 53-year-old widow who was described as loving and almost saintly. Uh, in my opinion, like her life story is just the saddest of all life stories. What happened was that she and her only son, Orville, had moved into the two-story house at 175 Plymouth Avenue in Buffalo 18 years earlier, after the death of her husband. But only six years later, Orville, her son, died from complications of a ruptured appendix. So, like, shame. She moved there, her husband died, then her son died. Like, just complete sadness and just bleh. So this loss made her loved ones fear that she might just like give up. However, she was a boss. She didn't. She decided that she would keep trucking and she plunged herself into church work and she just dedicated herself to the welfare of others because she's just like the most amazing person. Uh, to make ends meet, she would work as a waitress at the YMCA restaurant. YMCA. Okay, anyway. And she also started taking in tenants who provided her with that extra bit of income as well and it also they also sort of acted as like that outlet for her to express her maternal instincts you know 
So at around 11 a.m. on Friday the 27th of May 1927, a man who called himself Charles Harrison appeared at her door. Jenny's brother, Gideon, who happened to be one of her tenants, opened the door and greeted the man who explained that he was looking for a place to live and he saw that there was a room available. So Gideon told him that the room was $5 a week which made the strange man almost decline the room saying, oh, it's a bit expensive, like, oh, I don't know, maybe I should go look somewhere else. And, and then at that point, Jenny like sort of popped around the corner and she was like, hi, what's up, what's happening? And then suddenly the strange man was reconsidering and, and his whole tune changed. Like, suspicious. He then left and returned in around 6 p.m. that evening with $5 for the room and he went and settled in. On Sunday, the 29th of May, Jenny found herself chatting with the strange new tenant of hers for hours. They sat in the sitting room along with Jenny's brother, chatting merrily into the night. At around 10 p.m., Jenny's brother went to bed. He said that he woke up at around 12 a.m. the next morning, and he heard that, you know, they were still there chatting. So he was like, damn, okay. So he went back to sleep, and around 3 a.m., he awoke again, and he went downstairs took the milk bottles out and instead of going back up to his room he fell asleep on the couch so another tenant named Fred Merritt who was a night shift watchman returned from his shift at around 7:30 a.m. he was surprised to see that Jenny was not there getting ready to go to work so you know he was like huh odd but he shrugged it off and went to go get himself some breakfast and about 15 minutes later he returned and she was still nowhere to be found so he was like, oh, okay, that's a bit odd. So he woke up Gideon, her brother, and they started to search the house. Gideon, however, noticed some ugly red stains in the kitchen that Fred had not seen. They looked like blood stains. So they rushed towards the room, and there they saw the same reddish stain leading up the stairs. The trail of blood ended at the new tenant's door. They bashed the door open, and there they saw a pair of woman's feet sticking out from under the bed. Her assault was described as bestial, which, by the way, is the title of the book that I'm that I read for this. Bestial. I'll I'll link it in the show notes. Her eyes were black and bulging. Her nose was beaten flat, and her face was covered in scratch marks. She had been hit hard on the side of her head with a blunt object, and she was garroted with a kitchen towel that had been pulled so tightly that it had embedded herself in embedded itself in her flesh. She was naked below the waist, her skirt and undergarments violently ripped off. She was raped post-mortem. Her tenant, Mr. Harrison, the stranger, was nowhere to be seen. The police chief in Buffalo immediately knew that it was this Harrison guy, and he also said that he believed it, that it, this guy was the strangler from the other side of the country, so the one who called himself Adrian Harris previously so Harris Harrison yeah I don't know he was pretty creative with his names I'm not gonna lie but I mean some of them are very like similar I guess you could say uh, I don't know so his next attack was a double hit and it was in Detroit which is 256 miles or around 411 kilometers from Buffalo this is around four and a half hours drive from Buffalo this slaying happened on the 1st of June 1927 only a few days after Jenny Randolph. The two victims were Mrs. Noresh Chandra Atarthi. However, at the time, she was going as her maiden name, Maureen Oswald. 
She was married to and divorced from her ex-husband, who was a Hindu physician. According to her own reports in the divorce proceedings, Dr. Atathi was highly abusive and a terrible husband who would humiliate her all the time. In his report, he said that his wife was an alcoholic and a drug addict who had stolen narcotics from his office. Later, it was discovered that she had served in the army and was wounded and sad sadly had become addicted to morphine. Morphine is insane. It is so addictive and I've seen so many people's lives ruined by it. But anyway, I mean, I can't take it. I went for an op once and I had like they stuck a morphine drip in my arm and my whole arm went like very purple very quickly and it was incredibly painful and I was like uh something's wrong here but I was like hopped up from being in surgery so I was like hey <laughs> something's like very wrong <laughs> anyway so yeah I haven't I haven't had any of that well I haven't had a surgery after that not that I can think of but anyway besides the point I'm getting very distracted she had taken up a room at 640 Philadelphia Avenue West which was a boarding house that was managed by a widow named Mrs. Fanny May now, not much was really said about what happened, but the owner of the boarding house, Leonard Sink, which is a cool name by the way, went around to collect the rent on the 1st of June and there was no answer at the door. So he left. On the 2nd of June, he returned. Again, no answer. So he left again. Finally, on the 3rd of June, he went back. He collected two officers and they went into the, the house and they found Mrs. May's body first. She was lying face down on the tiles in the upstairs bedroom. Her white cotton dress was bunched above her hips and an electric cord was wrapped around her neck. Mrs. Atorfi, or Maureen Oswald, was found stretched on the floor in the adjacent room. She had been garroted with a length of black ribbon. The front of her blouse was ripped open and her skirt was pulled up to her waist. Her hat was on the floor next to her. They assumed, by the way that the two ladies were dressed, that Mrs. May, well, Mrs. May was in her house clothes and Mrs. Atorfi was going out, like, in her going out clothes. So the idea, they, they surmised that Mrs. May was killed first. Then the killer waited for her housemate to arrive. Now, Mrs. Atorfi, who was known to have a small wee bit of a drug problem, was also said to have like been a bit rough around the edges. So what did the police do? They just assumed that it, they had been killed by her drug friends. Essentially, they blamed the whole thing on her because why not? It's easy. They were wrong. Wasn't her. Wasn't her drug friends. Was Earl. Oh, also, I realized in the last episode, I didn't know that it was called My Name is Earl. Sorry about that. I think I called it My Cousin Earl, which was, it's basically the same thing. <laughs> so on Friday the 4th of June, he killed his next victim, 27-year-old landlady named Maria Cecilia Sitsima, in the living room of her home at 7501 South Sangamon Street, Chicago. I just read Sangoma, I'm not going to lie to you. So, this is around 283 miles or 455 kilometers from Detroit and would have taken about 6 hours on a train or 4 hours 20 minutes driving. At first, there were two suspects that were named in this case, but they were both cleared. The one who had blood on his shoes, uh, which, first of all, what? He was able to prove that he got the blood on his shoes from a wound he sustained while opening a tub of butter in his father's shop. I don't know, that still feels kind of suspicious to me, but anyway. The other suspect was able to prove that he was out getting drunk, which, okay, <laughs> fair enough. 
So there was literally nothing else that I could find about this case, but this was Earl's last victim in America, and she was victim number 20. So Earl Nelson was now moving on his way to Canada. Winnipeg, to be more precise. What happened was is that he crossed the border into Canada on the 8th of June 1927. To get to Winnipeg from Chicago, it is around 1,100 miles or 1,770 kilometers, and it would take around 17 hours to drive. We know that Earl hitched rides to get there. That's as much as I could gather. He didn't have two cents to rub together, so he sold some clothing and began looking for a place to stay. He arrived at 133 Smith Street just before 5 p.m. on Wednesday the 8th of June. The lady, who I assume owned the place, but she definitely ran it, was Mrs. Hill. She answered the door and he introduced himself as Mr. Woodcoats. I mean, like I said, very creative with his naming. She was like a battle axe, though, and she was like, listen, yeah, mm, I don't know, there's no drinking or whoring in this establishment. And he was like, that's wonderful, because he said he wanted a quiet place so he could sit and study his Bible. He knew just what to say to manipulate the ladies. Anyway, she liked what she heard. So she, like I said, okay, come and have a look. I'll show you the room. And she was like, I've got this one for $12, and I've got a smaller do- smaller one for $10, but the smaller one would only be available the week after. So he kind of was like, ah, I guess I'll take the large one for now. But he said to her, like, listen, I don't have any money, so can I pay you on Friday? Is that okay? So she was like, okay, yeah, fine, that's fine. So they sat and they chatted, and she said that he seemed like a man of high ideals and that she liked him. But that night he went to bed and only emerged at tea time the next day, Thursday, the 9th of June, which is when he attacked his next victim. So there is a trigger warning for this next victim. Uh, she was a child. Lola Cohen was only a few days away from turning 14. It was said that she was still a child, but she had the body of an adult and could have passed as 20. On the 9th of June, she was walking. She was waiting around in the park, wanting to play baseball with her friends. And at 5 p.m. she scooped up her books and headed home. I mean, that's just, it's so heartbreaking. Like, she was playing baseball with her friends. I can just imagine, that's so cute. It's like so wholesome. But she was a responsible child for the most part. So what happened was her father fell ill and he couldn't work. He was a traveling salesman. So in the evenings, she, so her sister would make these like fake flowers out of paper. So in the evenings she would take those fake flowers and then she would try and sell them. I mean, I can't. It's just so wholesome. So that evening, she arrived home at about 5.20 p.m. She did some homework, and then at around quarter past six, she got dressed and ready to go out to sell her flowers. Two people recalled seeing her that night. Uh, What happened was she knocked on their doors, trying to sell them their flowers. They were both like, no, thank you. So it's really undetermined when and where and how she ran into Earl Nelson, but... You know, it'll never really be known. But the theory is that he bumped into her on the street and then in an effort to get her to be alone, he told her that he wanted to buy some flowers. But he would need to go back to his place and she would need to come with him because that's where his money was. So just, you know, hashtag some advice. If someone says you need to go back to their place so they can buy your product, rather run in the other direction, please. Like as quickly as possible. Thank you. Public service announcement. So, but anyway, he did somehow lure her in, and on that evening, the 9th of June, 
he somehow got her inside his room without anyone knowing or seeing anything. Because this is where he murdered Lola Cohen, by strangling her. He hid her body under the bed and it went undetected for days. Earl was gone from the lodging house by 11pm that night. A few miles away in Elmwood, an elderly widower noticed a man across the road at his neighbor's house fiddling with the door. This was the next day, just so you know. He said that he often saw the husband leave early and only return after dark, and he like didn't really know what he looked like, but he assumed that the man was the husband of the house, so didn't really take much notice of it. The family that lived at the house was named Patterson. Patterson. It was a husband and a wife named William and Emily and their two sons. They had just arrived in the country from Ireland two weeks earlier. The elderly neighbor also did not recognize that, some str that same strange man leave the house in completely different clothes about half an hour later. A second-hand clothes dealer, thrift shopping, ooh, ooh, I can't think of the song right now, I'm gonna pop some tags, only got $20 in my pocket, anyway. A second-hand clothes dealer on Main Street had a customer come in at around 1.15pm that day and ask for a full new outfit. So he picked one out and was able to pay $30 for the lot. Now that's a lot of money back then. He had a bunch of notes in his pocket that he used to pay for this, and this is important later. And he also then went for a shave and a haircut at 2pm. That evening he hopped on a trolley, or a train, after eating and purchasing a weird fedora hat. Like he was like obsessed with this hat, so he was like, fuck I need that hat. So he bought it. And then he sat on a train, <laughs> he sat on the train next to this man. And what he did is he introduced himself as Walter Woods. So, Woodcoats. He was now Walter Woods. Anyway. And he kept asking this man if he was religious. And the man was like, uh, not really. Like, he kept saying, but I can see in your face you are. And the guy was like, what? I just want to get home. <laughs> but eventually, one of the things that he said to the man that stood out to him was, in quotes, Satan has too much power over educated men like me. End quotes. He then gave him the weird hat that he had just bought and got off the train. <laughs> this guy was like, uh, thank you. <laughs> oh, I don't know if you heard that sound that just came from my throat. That was bizarre. Anyway, <clears throat> it's the bugs. So at around 6.25pm, William Patterson arrived home in Elmwood. The house was empty and his two sons were still at his neighbor, Mrs. Evelyn Stanger, Stanger who had not seen their mother since that morning when they chatted while dropping the kids off at school. So he took the boys back home, fed them and put them to bed and by 10.30pm he started to worry about his wife. So they didn't have a phone, they, they didn't have a phone, imagine that. And so he quickly went back to the St Stanger household and he used their phone to call all of Emily's friends. No one had seen her or heard from her all day. He returned home just after 11pm and he was worried sick. He noticed something that he had not noticed earlier. He had this little locked suitcase where he would stash, like where he stashed his nest egg money. It was about sixty dollars at that time, and this little suitcase had been tampered with and pried open. So he went to look inside, and his money was gone, and there was a claw hammer inside instead. So he was like, "What in the hell?" He says that he felt dizzy with confusion, and he was deeply religious. So he he went and he knelt by his son's bed and he started to pray, and as he got up his knee caught the low-hanging cover of the bed and he saw something under it. It 
it almost looked like his wife's sweater. So he then like felt under the bed to be like, why is there a sweater under you? He got the shock of, her, of his life. His wife's strangled and mutilated corpse was stuffed under their son's bed. Emily was only 23 years old. Her skirt had been yanked up to her waist and her stockings were rolled down to her knees. She had blood all over her face from her beaten nose and mouth. She had a nasty bruise on her forehead that they thought could have come from the hammer that Mr. Patterson found in his suitcase. She was hit with the hammer, then strangled to death. She was raped post-mortem. They had also found some dried semen on her thigh, but this was way before DNA was a thing, so that didn't really help. The detectives at the scene found that one of Mr. Patterson's coats was missing, and that the killer seemed to have left his own coat there in the, in the corner. Inside that coat, they found a piece of newspaper that had the rooms for rent section on it, like crumpled up in the pocket. So, I mean, this guy had no scum. So at this point, the police were like, hmm, this must be that dark strangler fellow from the States. We must be on high alert. So they went to all the boarding houses throughout the area, which included the boarding house that Mrs. Hill ran, the one where Earl had stayed for, you know, a while. They asked her if she had any dodgy lodges, <laughs> and she said no. Because remember, she thought that Mr. Woodcoats was lovely, even though... He, she like hadn't seen him for a few days she assumed that he was still there by the following day Sunday the 12th of June she did start to get a bit worried though because he still owed her rent for the week that he was there so she went to the door and knocked there was no answer so she opened the door she saw that nobody had been there since the last time that she went into the room a few days ago she also noticed a really foul stench in the room but she assumed that that smell was from the lingering stink of Mr. Woodcoats because remember He's stanky. So she opened the window and left the room, leaving the door open behind her. She then went downstairs and told her husband that she may have inadvertently lied to the police and that she was worried. He told her that he would stop at the police station the next day on his way home from work before he went to church, which he did the next day at around 5.30pm. At around this exact time, <laughs> another one of Mrs. Hill's tenants, who was staying in like the nice room, happened to be walking up the stairs, back towards his room, and he looked inside the room that was now open that Mr. Woodcoats had stayed in, when he caught a glimpse of something under the bed. When he realized what he was looking at, he freaked out and ran to Mrs. Hill, who went to go and investigate. When she looked under the bed, she saw the naked body of a teenage, around 14-year-old, Lola Co Cohen. Obviously, she didn't know like who it was, but, you know, we know. Shame. By this time, the news had broken and hundreds of people gathered outside the boarding house, all with a morbid curiosity that only us human beings can have. Poor Mr. Hill was so unaware of the fiasco at his house. After going to the police station, he went to church. I'm laughing because shame. He went to church because he was old school like that. And then he arrived home at around 7.30 p.m. And there was just crowds of people outside. And he was like, what the hell? But while he was walking, he heard like little bits of conversations about the murdered woman. So he damn near had a heart attack. And he rushed inside where he was like, oh my gosh, my wife is dead. I, can, I heard about a, a murdered woman. But he was very relieved to see that his wife was still alive. But when he looked in the room, he saw that the bed had been moved. And there on the floor lay a naked teenage girl, stiff and very much dead. She did have a small smudge of blood on her thigh and the cops had no way of identifying her. 
Now back to the poor Cohens, Lola's parents. When Lola failed to return home on Thursday night, her parents were worried sick. But you know, they tried to stay calm, they tried calling her friends, they thought maybe she went somewhere and didn't tell them. You know, it was, it was back in the days, kids did what they wanted to do. But then early the next morning when she hadn't gotten home or got hold of her them, her father arrived at her school where she was absent, which she never was. She was a star student. He asked her peers if anyone knew where she might be or where she could have been, but nobody knew. So he then went to report her missing. By Sunday, they had no idea where she might be, and in a desperate attempt, her mother actually hired a fortune teller who said that a man in a blue suit will bring news of Lola before Monday. Her father went to church on Sunday evening where he heard people talking about the, teen the dead teenager that was found. He figured out where the dead teenager was found and he went to the house where he learned that the body of a 14-year-old had been found and was taken to the undertaking parlor. He rushed to get to the undertaking parlor and when he got there, he found his wife was already there. Remember how she how they filed the missing persons report well the police at the scene of the crime checked with the missing persons and they found that there was a child that was reported missing so constable Payne showed up at her house that evening in his blue suit and asked her to come and identify the body the fortune teller was right now the hunt was on the police knew that they had to catch this guy before he you know because like he would just carry on also he could just go back to America and get away forever. There would be no stopping him if he got there. So they were like balls to the wall. We were like, they were like, we gonna get him. So they had it all over the news. It was like everyone was on the lookout. They started calling him the Gorilla Man. I think it had something to do with like there was some theory back in the day that like people who hadn't evolved correctly became serial killers also he had giant hands so he somewhat resembled a gorilla but anyway so every deadbolt door chain and lock was sold out almost immediately because there was such widespread panic and fear people who ran boarding houses turned away any strangers so visitors were forced to find other accommodation like hotels which were now fully booked there was a manhunt for this man and so many people got themselves involved there were patrols being done houses were being interviewed like they were on a roll there was also a reward put up for a thousand dollars which someone added to making it one thousand five hundred dollars for any information that led to an arrest now back then like that was a lot of money i mean i wouldn't mind the money now even so in the beginning they seemed to make progress and they found mr patterson's suit in the second hand store on main street where earl actually went to go like get a whole new outfit so the owner gave the police details on the man and what had happened the day that he was there with this information the police were able to put a bulletin board up with the information. It described the suspect as the following. 28 to 30 years, 5 foot 7 or 8 inches, 150 pounds, dark sallow complexion, has Jewish or Italian appearance, peculiar eyes, fairly well built, hair thin on top and brushed back in long pompadour, newly barbered and inclined to be curly, believed to have very bad corns or bunions on feet. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting that they put the feet thing in there. So Earl had arrived in Regina, which is in... Please forgive me. Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. 
about 350 miles from Winnipeg on the Saturday afternoon. The first thing he needed to do was find a place to stay, so he went to a newsstand to get the rooms for rent from the newspaper. At around 3pm, he arrived at Mary Rose House at 1852 Lawn Street. He told her that he was there for the room and she showed the open room to him. He asked if she had something smaller or more secluded. She did not, so he said he would think it over, on Sunday morning, another lodger at this house got a bit of a fright when this strange man entered her room and just stood there, staring at her for a while. She then was like, oh, and he's, he then apologized profusely and said, oh, I'm so sorry, I thought this was the bathroom. But she said that she felt very uncomfortable by the way that he stared, because he like stared her down, which is just bleh. So on Monday, the 13th of June, Mary Rowe sat outside watching her daughter play. She also had a chat with her new lodger. She mentioned that she felt uncomfortable. She later mentioned that she felt uncomfortable with him near her daughter because he would not stop looking at her. So later that afternoon, she realized that she had not seen her daughter in some time. So she looked around the house and there was no sight of her at all. So she started to panic, obviously. So she put her street clothes on and she ran into like around. She was like, "Babe, where are you?" You know. So she ran to a park nearby where she knew that her daughter liked to play. She couldn't see her there, but what she did catch a glimpse of was a little blue umbrella through the bushes. So she ran towards the little blue umbrella, pushed through the bushes onto a street where she found her daughter walking with the umbrella resting on her shoulder with Mr. Harcourt walking next to her. Creep. She gave her daughter a stern talking to and told her not to be alone with that man. That evening, she didn't feel comfortable being alone in the house with him, which is smart, so she took her daughter out for dinner. He asked where he could go and get a shave, and she said that she wasn't sure there was he could try down the road. He said that he had a, in quote, hot date Ugh. later that evening when, you know, and he needed to be ready for it. When she returned, he had, this, he had got the shave, but mentioned that he got stood up and he was quite frustrated. The next morning, on the 13th of June, he left the house and hurried back about 20 minutes later. He was like in a rush. And she noticed that he had a copy of the newspaper in his hand. He literally ran up the stairs, skipping one step at a, st at a time, got changed into something else and left, leaving most of his belongings behind. What had happened is that he saw the paper, and in the paper, the whole of Canada was looking, off, was, was like looking for him. They were after him. So now he had to run. When he left the boarding house, the first place he stopped was a jeweler. He had a gold ring that he had taken, that he had taken off of Miss Mrs. Patterson's body that he needed to sell. The jeweler later recalled or commented that he had never seen such large hands before. He then went to a thrift shop and swapped his clothes for a khaki shirt and some overalls. He left the thrift store and was receiving some strange stares because he had this weird fancy fedora on which he had to sell for a plainer hat. I mean he was very upset by that because this fedora was just such a cool hat in his opinion. By 10am he was about a mile southeast trying to hitch a ride trying to get back into the USA. There was a driver that pulled over and only took him about one hour south, but he wasn't going as far as what Earl needed to go to, which was fine. He dropped him off and he carried on walking. So Earl decided to take a break, and while he was taking that break, another car pulled over, and there was a traveling salesman inside. He was like, hey man, you need a lift? But he only took him about three miles. So when he dropped him off, he said, if you carry on down that street, you'll find somebody. Somebody will pick you up. 
and sure as nuts. <laughs> a few moments later, another man named Silverman stopped and asked Earl where he was headed. And he explained that he was out looking for scrap metal and that he needed a hand. Earl was like, oh heck yeah, I'm going to help you pick up scrap metal. That sounds like my thing. So they spent the day picking up scrap metal and they spent the night in the hotel. The next day they went in search of more scrap metal again and they spent the night at another hotel after that. Then the next day, Silverman dropped Earl off. He was now 20 miles from the border. I'm sorry, but I'm just saying, like, you're on the run. Why would you stop to, like, help someone pick up some metal? <laughs> I don't... I just don't understand it. Like, this... I, I don't get it. So there is an interesting excerpt from the book that I'm reading, or that I read, sorry, and it goes as follows. According to criminologists, the typical mass murderer... The seemingly normal man who suddenly snaps and goes on a wildly destructive rampage is motivated not just by homicidal impulses, but by suicidal ones as well. The disgruntled worker who shows up at the office one morning and guns down everyone in sight is a kind of human time bomb, erupting in insane, random violence. When the explosion is over, there are corpses scattered everywhere, his own included, since most killers of this kind either take their own lives to avoid capture or die in a barrage of police gunfire. Essentially, these are the men who, having reached some psychological breaking point, decided to go out in an ap apocalyptic blaze, taking as many people with them as they possibly can. The case tends to be different with serial killers. To be sure, some of them are actively self-destructive. In the view of many crime historians, Jack the Ripper's reign of terror ended abruptly when the notorious harlot butcher overwhelmed with revulsion after his final enormity, took his own life. And other homicidal maniacs have clearly wished to be stopped. Most famously, in the 40s, lips the lipstick killer, William Herons, who left a desperate message scrawled at one crime scene that said, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. For the most part, however, serial murderers aren't interested in stopping. They try to keep killing as long as they can. For a very simple reason. They enjoy it. Lust murder is their ultimate thrill. Even when their behavior borders on the reckless, on one occasion, for example, Ted Bundy abducted two young women from a crowded public beach in broad daylight, pleasure is their primary motivation. The risk-taking only adds to the excitement. Earl Leonard Nelson typified this pattern. Since embarking on his deadly spree in the early in early 1926, he had done everything possible to avoid arrest, keeping constantly on the move, assuming a string of false identities, changing his wardrobe every time he hit a new town. Endowed with the usual traits of his breed, cunning, intelligent, and an abnormal sang-froid, I must google what that means, he had managed to elude pursuers throughout the United States. From the moment he crossed into Canada, however, his behavior almost guaranteed his capture. Though it is possible that he was possessed by self-destructive impulses, a secret desire to be punished for his crimes, there are, however, other equally plausible explanations for his actions. Arrogance is one, the disdainful belief that after failing to nab him for a year and a half, the police were simply no match for him. It is also the case that, as far back as 1921, Nelson had been diagnosed as a constitutional psychopath with outbreaks of psychosis, a man with a profoundly disordered mind. Whatever the reason, suicidal feelings, hubris or delusional thinking, Earl Leonard Nelson had left clues in his wake from the moment he arrived in Winnipeg on Wednesday the 8th of June, and by the following Tuesday, the police had finally picked up his trail.
The Canadian police were doing the damn thing. They were contacting everyone who was thought to have been like in contact with the strangler and they were closing in on him boy they somehow found out by talking to numerous witnesses like where he was which is Re regina and they were headed there so once they were there they found out that he had fled and which way he was going and they like they just they were doing the damn thing like i said so on wednesday the 15th of june police were at this point announcing everything they knew on the radio in the papers wherever they could get it out they were like hey this is what he looks like. This is where he's going. He's headed this way. So everyone knew. So a man named Roy Armstrong was driving along when he spotted a stranger walking in the road. And he had heard what the police were saying. So he pulled over and he asked the man like where he was headed. The man said that he was headed to his ranch in Sporting. So Roy was like, where the heck is that? Okay. But, you know, he could only drive him for a few a few miles. But, you know, when, when, he, when he dropped him off, Roy knew it was him. So now, Roy over here was a bit greedy, okay? He could have called everyone he knew, and this guy could have been caught in no time. Tom. But instead, all he could think about was that cash dollar, the 1,500 reward. So he called one guy, Constable Joe Young, and they decided that they were going to catch him on their own. They literally, like, they did a cat and mouse chase, and I picture it, like, in those cartoons where, you know, where it's like, ding, 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 and it's like, it's I picture it like that like Tom and Jerry vibes so they were following clues and leads and they tried everything in their power to catch this dude and it's quite funny actually like they stopped off everywhere and they were like oh this guy passed through my farm and then they were like oh, okay which way and they would go that way and then they were like oh okay cool so they would like go in the direction and then one farmer was like yes he's just been here he just walked through my farm but aren't you guys hungry don't you want to come in for dinner so they were like yeah we are pretty hungry so they went inside and had a meal quickly. I mean, it, it, forget about the fact that you're pursuing a man. So, but they were apparently hot in his trail when they somehow got their truck stuck in some mud. And this was around 5.45 p.m. And they could not get it out. They were only about five miles from the U.S. border. So, like, at this point, I just love how involved everyone in Canada was. Like, everyone was on the lookout. So Earl was like trying to get to that border, but you know, a man's got to eat and smoke. So he stopped at a convenience store and he bought himself some cheese, some Coke and some smokes. And when he left, the owner was like, ah, oh, I'm pretty sure that was him. So he like kept an eye on where he went. And then he passed through a farm where the farm owner noticed him and he was like, oh, that's definitely the weird guy. So he called the police and the police like rushed to the area. And they set off to try and catch him before he could cross, you know, the borderline. So they pretty much all, they were, they were there. They were ready. They were, they were on his, on his tail. So when they eventually saw him in the bushes, like towards the railroad track at around 6.45 p.m., a man named Constable Gray tracked him down, drew his pistol and ordered the man to stop. This guy was like, I ain't trying to cross no line. I ain't, I ain't trying nothing. <laughs> so he just kept talking. At it, and at around 7.45 p.m., he was arrested. He claimed that his name was Virgil, Virgil Wilson and that he was Canadian. Canadian. But they immediately picked up on the fact that he kept using the term ranches instead of farms. So they were like, okay, no, we know. So in the car, while they were driving to Kalani for him to be imprisoned, 
Like, this guy was super chatty with them. He was like, oh, you know, what a, what a, what a, so chilled, so calm. He was so chilled and nice, in fact, that the officers actually started, like, having doubts if it was actually the right man or not. So, at this point, the news had spread really fast, and there was a crowd gathering outside the prison house. So, they got him through the crowd, put him into a cell where he lay on his bank, like, bunk, super chilled, hands behind his head, just like, yeah, man, this is, life is good. So Gray locked him in and he left telling a Mr. Dunn to keep an eye on the prisoner because he had to go do some things. So about two hours later at 11.15 p.m. Mr. Dunn burst into Gray's office and he was like, oh my goodness, he escaped. I don't know how he escaped, but he escaped. What happened was, well, I mean, mean, are we we even surprised that Earl Leonard Nelson escaped? I'm not. (laughs) I read it and I was like, ah, of course. I'm not far enough into the book to know. So what happened was he, he he wanted to have a smoke while he watched this dude, but he had no matches. So he was like, ah, two minutes. What's he going to do in two minutes? There's no harm to go and find some matches. It did harm, Mr. Dunn. It did harm. So they set off the alarms. The prisoner had escaped. Everyone was alert. And about a hundred townsmen equipped with like lanterns and weapons combed the woods in search of him. Like, just imagine that scene from Shrek. You know that scene. That's how I imagine it. So at this point, Gray put out a notice to every department from there to Winnipeg. And the Winnipeg squad decided they would go and help in the search. And there was, like, you know, they were like, we've got to get there. But there was very heavy rain, and, like, cars back then weren't so good. I mean, even now, I don't like driving in the rain, but that's besides the point. So they actually arranged with a train company for a special train to take them to that area so at 2:15 a.m the special train departed with 18 officers and two bloodhounds in it the anticipated arrival time was around half past eight so first things first i just need to apologize if the sound is slightly different now things happen anyway moving on what happened was there was a small wooden shelf in the cell that earl was placed in He felt that shelf, and there was somehow a nail file that had slipped behind it. So he actually used that little escaped nail file, or loose nail file, to escape his prison cell. He ran away from the jail, and when he heard the alarms and the people, he actually climbed up a tree, like a gorilla, like the gorilla man that they called him, and he hid on on the top branches, while the people looked on below him. When they were gone, he climbed down and carried on running. He was going in the general direction of the railroad in hopes of hopping on a train and getting out of the country. He would duck into any vacant building or spot whenever he saw a light approaching, then carry on. He eventually came up to a vacant barn where he found a pile of clothing in the corner. In that pile of clothes, he found an old pair of hockey skates, which he managed to somehow tear the blade off of, and he put those onto his bare feet. It must be so uncomfortable. He also pulled on an old cardigan, and he fell asleep in that abandoned barn. Something woke him at around 8am and he realised that it was a train approaching. This was it. His time to escape. He had used train hopping many times to get to his destination, so he knew exactly how to do it. So now this guy had balls. Balls of steel. He decided, on his way to the train station, that he would first stop and bum a cigarette from a guy tending to his garden. I mean, huh? So this guy gave him the smoke, kind of realized that this was the dude because of what he was wearing and just in general, he kind of stood out like a sore thumb. But, you know, he played it cool because, you know, this is a murderer. (laughs) So he was like, yeah, sure, you get the smoke. But as soon as Earl left towards the tracks, the man 
that had given him the smoke, found some youths and he told them to rush to town to tell people that the strangler was there. And he decided that he would follow the men to keep an eye on him. So now at this point, a police officer named, a police officer named Renton was on his way to get the strangler, but his car broke down and needed repairing. So he took it to the mechanic. And while waiting at the mechanic, these young boys came roaring up the street and they told everyone that the other man had seen the strangler. So Renton, the cop, jumped in the car and he was like, off we go. We must catch the man. And they were like, but we have exams. We must be quick. And he was like, go. So they sped off in the direction. They saw the strange man near the train track. So Renton jumped out of the car and Nelson saw him and tried to run. But Renton told him that he was that he had a gun and that he you know, needed to stop. So Will stopped. He tried to lie his way out of it, saying, oh, but I'm Canadian. I work here. I live here. I live over there. You know, it, it just a bunch of rubbish. And shortly after this, he was then driven to the train station where the train had just stopped. You know, the one full of police people. <laughs> they were expecting a manhunt, but the man they were hunting was delivered directly to their carriage before they could even get off the train. Everyone was confused. <laughs> so that exact train left at around 10 a.m. that same morning to get back to Winnipeg. They attempted to put handcuffs on Nelson, but he got loose within 30 seconds. And he was like, you're going to have to do something better than that, boys. So they actually had to shackle him to a chair where he could not get loose. He kept saying that his name was Virgil Wilson, and he spoke with everyone as though he was a long-lost friend. He smoked a bunch of cigarettes, and they fed him food, and he just apparently was quite lovely. The train finally arrived at its destination at around 5.30pm that evening, and when he was marched into the interrogation room, he was fingerprinted and asked to write down his name, which he wrote down as Virgil Wilson, Vancouver. But after a moment, he sort of thought about things. He then crossed out what he had written and actually wrote down his real name. Earl Nelson, San Francisco. As though he sort of knew that it was over for him. This was the first time that anybody knew his real name. The name of the Strangler. He was picked out from a lineup by two witnesses. And he, you know, a bunch of people were like, yeah, it's definitely him kind of thing. But I don't really have enough time to tell you about what went down in terms of the trial. But basically, the, the trial was set to start on the 26th of July, and his court-appointed attorneys worked very hard to try and get it postponed. He was on trial in Canada for the two murders in Canada in a Canadian court. By the end of June, however, he was indicted for first-degree murder in five U.S. cities, that being Buffalo, Detroit, Philadelphia, Portland, and San Francisco. But Canada wanted to get him for the crimes committed on their land, you know, in their land. They were like, no, 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 we're going to get him for, for these two murders. So he maintained his innocence the entire way through. The trial was postponed until November, and the defense's only hope was to try and get him on, out on insanity. They even got someone in to take x-rays of his brain to try and prove that the head injury caused brain damage or that he may have had a syphilitic lesion. I could not find any results from those x-rays. I have tried searching. Apparently my research skills are just not that good. But anyway, in his trial, he was, you know, they pretty much read out the names of all of his victims that they knew, which I will quickly read out now, just to really hammer home the monstrosities, the horrors that this man committed. So here are his known victims. Number one was Clara Newman, San Francisco, 20th of February, 1926. Number two was Laura Beale, San Jose, 2nd of March, 1926. Number three was Lillian St. Mary, San Francisco, 10th of June, 1926. Number four was Ollie Russell in Santa Barbara on the 24th of June, 1926. 
Number five was Mary Nisbet in Oakland on the 16th of August, 1926. Number six was Beta Withers in Portland on the 19th of October, 1926. Number seven was Virginia Grant in Portland on the 20th of October, 1926. Number eight was Mabel Fluke in Portland on the 21st of October, 1926. On the number nine was Mrs. William Anna Edmonds in San Francisco on the 18th of November, 1926. Number 10 was Florence Monks in Seattle on the 23rd of November, 1926. Number 11 was Blanche Myers in Portland on the 29th of November, 1926. Number 12 was Mrs. John Burrard in Council Bluffs, Iowa on the 2nd of December, 1926. Number 13 was Bonnie Pace in Kansas City, Missouri on the 27th of December, 1926. Number 14 was Germania Harpin, Kansas City, Missouri, Missouri on the 28th of December, 1926. Number 15 was her son, Robert Harpin, in Kansas City, Missouri, on the 28th of December, 1926. Number 16 was Mary McConnell in Philadelphia on the 27th of April, 1927. Number 17 was Jenny Randolph in Buffalo on the 30th of May, 1927. Number 18 was Fannie Mae in Detroit on the 1st of June, 1927. Number 19 was Maureen Oswald Atothy in Detroit on the 1st of June, 1927. Number 20 was Mary Sietzma in Chicago on the 4th of June, 1927. Number 21 was Lola Cowan in Winnipeg on the 9th of June, 1927. And his final victim was number 22 was Emily Patterson in Winnipeg on the 10th of June, 1927. Now those were his crimes that they knew he committed. There were a bunch of crimes that are suspected to have been him, but he never ever admitted to them. They could never really tie him to it, but I'll quickly read those out now as well. On the evening of the 23rd of August, 1925, not long after he was discharged from Napa State Hospital, a 60-year-old widow named Elizabeth Jones was found strangled to death in the bedroom of her home at 3565 Market Street in San Francisco. According to several witnesses, Mrs. Jones, who had recently put her house up for sale, had been visited on the day of her death by a stocky, dark-skinned man who professed an interest in buying the property. Several weeks later, on the 1st of October, 1925, another San Francisco woman was strangled and raped after death. A strikingly attractive 32-year-old divorcee named Alma Wells, her naked, outraged corpse was found jammed into the clothes closet of a vacant apartment at 628 Guerrero Street, one of several buildings she managed. Um, on sun Saturday, the 7th of November, 1925, a waitress named Mary Murray was strangled in the kitchen of her house at 11, 1811 Judson Street by an unknown fiend who carried her lifeless body up to a second floor room, carefully deposited on a, it on a bed, then sexually vi violated the corpse. Just four days later, a 33-year-old housewife named Lena Weiner, Lena Weiner, of 2421 Napa Street was murdered and outraged in the same way as Mary Murray. Um, an overcoat and two suits belonging to Mrs. Wiener's husband, Hyman, were... Wow, they've got unfortunate names. Lena Wiener and Hyman Wiener. Sorry. Anyway, two overcoats belonging to her husband were stolen from the home. A third Philadelphia victim whose death received significantly less attention in the press because she was non-white, because back then they were incredibly racist, even now, but anyway, 
was a young woman dismissively identified in the papers as Ola McCoy Coloured, who was strangled to death in the parlour of her Montgomery Avenue house, just a few blocks away from the Murray home. As in the other cases, Mrs. McCoy's body was carried to an upstairs bedroom and subjected to post-mortem rape. So the detectives, as I said, they tried to get Earl to confess to these killings, but he kept saying he was innocent and that he had never been to any of the places that they said he was at, including Detroit and, you know, all of the other ones that he was known to have been in. And if you ask me, those specific murders that I just read, they sound awfully similar to how he would do things. And I mean, the timeline fits perfectly as well as the post-mortem rape like to me that you know not all serial killers you know a lot of serial killers maybe you know it's a sexual thing a sexual kill like a lust kill but a lot of them don't do the post-mortem rape thing like that i think you know that's quite a rare thing as far as i'm aware so for somebody especially at that time in the areas that he was in around the time that he was doing these things I believe that he did definitely committed all of those, but that's just my opinion. We'll never know for sure, huh? So while he was in his cell, one of the guards noticed that Earl obsessed over a particular passage in the Bible, and that was Proverbs chapter 23, verse 28 onwards. I mean, anyway, that verse goes as so. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. For an adulterous woman is a deep pit. And a wayward wife is a narrow well. Like a bandit, she lies in wait and multiplies the unfaithful among men. So basically what psychiatrists uh, surmised, it, it, it suggested that Earl was the type of sex killer that sees his victims as whores or filthy man traps who got exactly what they deserved. Which kind of makes sense if you think about how he would speak about his, in, in Air Bunnies, uh, his ex whenever he spoke to a woman about how she was a cheater and a this and that and also how, how jealous he was and he had this perverted view of woman in his head. So anyway, the trial happened and Earl was found guilty. He was sentenced to hang on the second Friday of January 1928, which happened to be Friday the 13th. And he was, uh, you know, he was told that that was going to happen. So all he said was, well, I better get start getting better food now. <laughs> Like, he was just so nonchalant about it. And he kept saying, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. But, I mean, they had they had evidence. They had fingerprints, all this kind of stuff. But, anyway, while he was in the gallows, he was asked if he had any last words. And he said, in a clear, firm voice, in quotes, I declare my innocence before God and man. I forgive those who have injured me, and I ask pardon from those I have injured. May the Lord have mercy on my soul. End quotes. And then he was hanged. It apparently took about seven minutes for him to die. And he was pronounced dead on the 13th of January, 1928. And that is the end of Earl Leonard Nelson, or The Strangler. He was disgusting. The things that he did were horrible. And part of the reason that he was found not insane, so he was fit to stand trial, was the fact that he covered everything up. And that, you know, he, you know, they, they sort of said that if it was an insane person acting on these things, they would have been caught much quicker. They would not have been running. They would not have, like, changed clothes and gone for haircuts and used pseudonyms or aliases. Pseudonyms, what? They wouldn't have used aliases. They wouldn't have um, tried to stuff the bodies behind or underneath anything. They would have, 
you know, just sort of been. And they said that he was too with it while committing these things to be considered insane, which is why he was eventually found guilty. So, I mean, that all makes sense. Sure, he may have had a brain injury and he may have had, you know, a syphilitic legion on his brain or whatever. But I think that those sort of just led to him... So one person said that they believed that he was psychotic, but he did not suffer from psychosis, which they tried to play in court. They tried to say, no, he has psychosis. He sees things, he hears things. And then the other psychiatrist said, no, he's definitely, I think, a psychopath. Psychopathic, sorry, not psychotic. Like, he's definitely psychopathic, but he's not, he does not have psychosis, which I think sort of stands true in that he had no feelings of guilt, no remorse, nothing, just... He just did what he wanted to do because that's who he was. This proper psychopath. Just as long as he got his rocks off, he was fine. You know? Screw everyone else, basically. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. And I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, I would really appreciate if you could, if you could leave like a review or a like. I don't know how these things work. But, you know, for any review or upvote or whatever it is left on on any of the platforms it definitely helps in terms of getting the podcast the organic growth if you will that would be really great tell your friends tell your family tell your teachers tell your boss i don't know let them know and yeah i will uh start on the next one it's gonna be fun it's gonna be a south african murderer i I do enjoy doing those so yeah i hope that you guys are gonna stay well i'm i'm just so glad that halloween is nearly over i was so excited for halloween and it's literally been the busiest month of my life like i don't think i've ever been this busy before <laughs> sorry now i'm just gonna go on a rant about how busy my life is so like i said before i i do uh, makeup and i work in a factory that makes special effects makeup so last year halloween was not even a thing like you know because it, it was lockdown so we have like a, a client here and there this year because we're now in level one lockdown, everyone is going balls to the wall. They're like, yes, we are partying. Party. So it's just been nonstop busy all the day in, day out. And then I also have to go do makeup for a family on Saturday evening, um, which I've had to prepare for. So I've had to make the prosthetics for that. And it's just, whew, I think after Sunday, I'm just going to sleep for a full day. Okay. After voting. Everybody go vote. You've got to vote if you want change. But yeah, I after voting, I am going to sleep the whole day. That's my plan. <laughs> While, <laughs> after downing a bottle of wine, I think. But anyway, I hope that you oddballs come back to listen to my next one. And I hope that you enjoyed this one. As, as, as bad as it was, I hope that you learned something. And I hope that you don't go around murdering ladies who are vulnerable. Okay, thank you. Have a good day, evening, whatever, and I'll uh, we'll chat next week. Bye.